this morning, we are going to dive into um, James, uh, a book that has been requested more than once uh, now, but uh, we're going to jump into that. And so if you'll turn there this morning, I want to introduce the book. Uh, we want to talk about who wrote it, when it was written, all of those sorts of logistical things that help give us some context that we can understand uh, this particular book in. And so that's what we are going to do this morning. So turn to James. I want to look at first who the author is. Um, and there's three potential candidates. So you read through and you look in the New Testament, we have a couple of different Jameses that are mentioned. Um, so there, there's at least two, and there's a case that some make that two of them are the same person, and we'll talk about that. I don't think that's the case, but uh, we'll, we'll talk about that just a little bit. So first, um, we have James, the son of Zebedee, who would be John's brother, one of the sons of thunder, right? That's what Jesus called them, he, of, of Peter, James, and John fame. That's that James. Um, I don't think that's the author of this book, but that is one possibility that people will throw out. Secondly, you have James, the son of Alphaeus. Um, when you go through and you look at the, the lists of the uh, apostles, you'll find that there's James, the son of Zebedee, and James, the son of Alphaeus. And so um, you don't have any more information than that. Uh, but there are those who make the suggestion that James, the son of Alphaeus, is actually the cousin of Jesus and the one and the same as the James that is discussed as the brother of Jesus, because the word brother in that day and age could oftentimes be applied to just near relatives. Um, there are those that describe that, so there's the possibility of only two. Uh, I, I don't think that the New Testament bears that out. I don't think that we even have to, to go there. But uh, we, the third option, the third James, is James, the literal half-brother of Jesus. And I'm convinced that's who, who has written this book. So as we talk about it, that's where we're coming from. Uh, just know that there are other theories that are put out there. Um, in the long run, we understand that no matter who wrote it, here it is recorded and preserved in Scripture. So, so the author is ultimately God because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for instruction in righteousness. So the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. It is his word. It isn't James's word. He's writing and he's addressing things from his unique perspective as the Holy Spirit inspires him to write them. This is Scripture. So while I believe that that's who it is, uh, maybe I'm wrong. It doesn't matter. It's still God's word. So historically, and really the most likely, is that this is James, the actual half-brother of Jesus. And historically, since very early on in the church, that is who this book has been ascribed to. It is by far the predominant uh, opinion of scholars. 
So if you look at, and, and a couple other things, some evidence that contributes to that, a comparison of the epistle, this letter, because it is an epistle, it's something that was written to be distributed and read, uh, and, and the speech that James gives in Acts chapter 15 are very stylistically the same. There's a lot of similarities in language and phrasing and those kinds of things. Uh, stylistically, it appears to be the same person. In some respects, it's kind of like uh, Hebrews. It's not ascribed a within the book to anyone in particular. It doesn't say who wrote it. But there's an awful lot of stylistic components that would lead us to believe that it was likely Paul who wrote. And I tend to subscribe to that, that opinion myself, but we don't ultimately know. Yet there it is, preserved in Scripture as part of God's Word. So uh, Acts chapter 15 uh, verses 13 through 29, you can write that down. We're actually going to end up there a little bit today, uh, but we see James uh, giving a speech as part of the uh, what we're going to call the Gentile controversy, um, and it's very similar in its, in its composition and structure and style to this epistle, giving us some understanding that probably uh, that was who wrote it. So, Turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Hold your place in James. You can hold your place in James till the very end because we're really not going to get into James too much till the end because we're introducing the book. Uh, Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. So here we have this discussion. It says, uh, people are recognizing who Jesus is. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not this his mother called Mary and his brethren, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Okay, so we have the very clear distinction that Jesus had brothers. And they, they aren't, while the word brothers could be interpreted in that day and age as any near relatives, in the context of this being the mothers, this, this is his mother called Mary and his brothers, there's a very close familial link there. And the context would really sort of indicate that we would interpret this as being his literal brothers. And we have James listed as one of those. Judas, right? That's the same as Jude. That's Jesus' other brother wrote another book in the New Testament. Okay, so, so here we have this identification of Jesus actually having brothers. Uh, if we turn to John chapter 7, there's a few things that we can determine about uh, about James that gives us uh, some insight and, and some understanding about him uh, just a little bit, as much as we can. James chapter 7, verse 3 through 5. So uh, Jesus is in Galilee. I'm actually going to begin in verse 1. And it says, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. Uh, that just means Judea. Jewry is Judea. So he didn't want to go there because they were trying to kill him. Now the Feast of the Tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples may also see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeks to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world, for neither did his brethren believe in him. So we have the understanding that here is Jesus in the middle of his ministry here on earth, teaching and instructing, working miracles, doing those things. And his brothers who have grown up watching him, seeing him, they're not believers. They don't, they don't, they're not there yet. 
And so we're making the inference, because it doesn't specifically say, but making the inference that this is probably inclusive of James. That at this point in his life, he's likely not a believer in Jesus Christ. And can you imagine growing up next to the Son of God? I mean, you know, we have the middle child, and they sort of get it because they just, they're under the radar, right? You got the little ones on this side and big ones on this side, and then the middle child is just under the radar, and it feels like they get away with stuff and whatever. It's a whole thing. I know I'm not a middle child, but I know some middle children, uh, not my children, because they're all the same, but but I know middle children, and they they have this opinion, oh, man, it's, I'm neglected, I'm a, whatever it may be. It isn't true. Obviously, it isn't true. Parents love all their children, but here is that sort of an idea to the infinite degree, right? Here's the Son of God, the literal God incarnate who has taken on flesh and is here now living on earth. And, and even at a young age, at eight years old, when he goes to Jerusalem with his parents, and he wasn't eight. I was thinking eight days old, but it was not that. He was a little older than that. Anyway, I was confusing the circumcision in eight days. And, but he went to Jerusalem with his family, and he disappears, right? And where do they find him? They find him with the, the, the scholars discuss with him, and they're astounded at his understanding. They're astounded at uh, the, the, what he, his, his grasp of what God's Word says, and, and their, his response to Mary and Joseph is, don't you know, I, I, I got to be about my father's business. This is where I'm supposed to be. And so you have this idea that here he is, you know, that, that God himself would say, this, he always is that which is pleasing to me. He's sinless. Can you imagine being Jesus' brother? Even if you witnessed the miracles, even if you witnessed all of the things that happened, and, and there's a huge gap of his childhood. We don't know what happened there. We're, we're making some inference here. I'm sure that Jesus played in the dirt like other boys. I'm sure that Jesus took the time and was trained to be somewhat of a carpenter himself because that's what Joseph did. I'm sure that all of the things of the normal upbringing of a boy that he would have experienced were just that. He experienced them. He wasn't somehow different in that sense. But his understanding, his living of his life, all of those things are going to be different because he's not corrupted by sin. And so there's going to be a difference, and, and there's going to be whether it's really there or not. Because I'm convinced that Mary and Joseph realized the special circumstance they're in. They've been told by angels, right? They were literally, they were there at the, the miraculous birth. They know who Jesus is. And I suspect, again, speculation, I suspect that they were very careful to not make comparison. That would be an unjust thing to do. That would be something that would be unfair to your other children. You can't say, if you just be like Jesus, <laughs> you know, and maybe it happened once or twice. It maybe James is, here he is. He's grown up with him. He's seen the difference in his life. He's seen the miracles. He's heard all the stuff. He's more familiar with him than anyone. He knows the legitimacy of him being sinless. 
because he's witnessed it. But perhaps there's some bitterness harbored there. And that's why even still he's choosing not to believe. We don't know, but at this point, Jesus' brothers are not believers. They're not with him. If we turn to Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1, let's look at verse 14. <clears throat> at some point, right, this is after, in Acts chapter 1, this is after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's ascended into heaven. They're waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit to come. And here they are, verse, uh, <clears throat> verse 14. So we, we have these disciples who were there. Uh, we have a couple of James uh, named in verse 13. And these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. So after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, now remember that Mary is there at the foot of the cross. She witnesses Jesus' death. And that's when Jesus says, hey, John, this is your mother. Take care of her. I don't know if his brothers are there or not. But here they are. They see they've encountered the risen Jesus. And if we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, as it's talking about the resurrection, this is the gospel, that Jesus Christ died according to, for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And then it says he was seen of Cephas and he was seen of James. And there's other 500 people in there, but he was seen of James. Here is James, who the brother of Jesus, who witnesses his, the risen Lord, and he comes to faith. And I'm convinced that that's the James that's being discussed in 1 Corinthians 15. I mean, we have other options. There are others that could be there. I don't think it's James, uh, the son of Zebedee, and I don't think it's James, uh, the son of Al Alphaeus. And the reason I don't think that is because they're with the disciples. They're, they're with the apostles. They're, they're in that category. And so those guys are shown elsewhere. But here is James specifically mentioned. And then we pick up in Acts chapter 1. So, so chronologically, we have some, some things happening in there. In the, between the resurrection and what we read in Acts. And seeing the risen Lord, seeing Jesus Christ back from the dead brings a confirmation of all that he said, all that he said he was, all that he said he was accomplishing. And for them, it's the confirmation of everything that Jesus said, and they, they come to faith. At least two of Jesus' brothers, at least James and at least Jude. In Galatians chapter 2, if you'll turn there with me. So, so James, after he comes to faith, uh, he becomes a pillar in the early church. He, he's a foundational character. I mentioned the Gentile controversy. We're going to talk about that here in just a, uh, just a few minutes. But the Gentile controversy that was there, uh, that was happening, and we find him being part of the Jerusalem Council. And here in Galatians chapter 2, Paul has spent time with James in the past, and this is where he says in verse 9, And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, Perceive the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. So here, here, 
they were pillars in the Jerusalem church, in that council, in, in, in the early church in Jerusalem. That's where it started. And I'm convinced that it isn't James, I mean, you got Peter, James, and John mentioned here, but I'm convinced that it's James, the brother of Jesus. And I base that upon what we read in Acts chapter 15. Him being that pillar, him specifically not being declared to be an apostle like the other Jameses were. Okay. So we have the author. I'm convinced it's Jesus' brother. Church history tells, confirms that. Uh, that has been the opinion historically since very early on. We have some indications that that would be who it is stylistically. It's at least the same author as the James in Acts chapter 15. There may be other options. Nonetheless, it remains to be the Word of God. None of that changes. So, who is it written to? Who is it written to? And when was it written? So the audience, it says in verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad, greetings. Okay, so James is specifically written to Jewish, Jewish believers, and, and specifically those who have dispersed as a result of persecution. The early church faced heavy persecution. They were bombarded with it, not only, and primarily by the Jews, I mean, we think of Paul, and who was previously Saul, who was a chief persecutor of the church. And if you turn to Acts chapter 8 for just a moment, Acts chapter 8, uh, we find that this mechanism, this persecutory mechanism is how God dispersed the gospel to the world around us. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. So the persecution of the early Christian church dispersing the disciples into the surrounding area. It became the mechanism that God used to spread the gospel to the known world. That's how it began. So when James is writing to these Jewish believers, he's writing to those who have left Jerusalem as a result of the persecution they were facing. And they spread out to Judea and Samaria and just gradually crept outward. That's specifically who he's writing to. Now, James is likely the oldest book in the New Testament. It is likely uh, to have been written about 49 AD, somewhere in that vicinity. And that becomes important because we have the Jerusalem Council happening in AD 50. That happened in AD 50. And a couple of things that lead me to believe that that's probably that it was written before that, and not just myself, but many scholars believe that it was written before that, uh, is that... Uh, <clears throat> Well, let's turn to Acts 15 for just a moment. In Acts chapter 15, we have this Gentile controversy, okay? Um, I'm going to take these a little bit of reverse order. This Gentile controversy, what that is, this is when the Judaizers have come, and they say, listen, you can't be saved unless you've been circumcised. And they're telling these Gentile believers that. That's 
what they're saying. And as we get into the beginning, the first few verses of Acts chapter 15, uh, that's what, what that says, right? right? You can't be saved unless you're circumcised after the manner of Moses. And it says in verse 2, Therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them. They determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. So this is such a significant thing that, listen, we have to understand, let's go get a ruling from the council in Jerusalem, from those guys who are leaders, who are pillars of the early church. I mean, we understand, right? And Paul stands firm on this. He says, no small disputation. In other words, Paul says, I fought tooth and nail and Barnabas right here by my side. We stood for salvation by grace through faith alone, not of works, lest any man should boast. Sounds like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. That's what Paul was standing for. That's what he was fighting against. And when we, as you read through this, you find the confirmation by the council in Jerusalem that that's exactly right. That's exactly what they come to. <clears throat> so Peter uh, speaks in, in verse 7 of Acts chapter 15. And then we get to at verse 13. Acts 15, 13, and after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon has declared, not being Peter, has declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written, After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. Then the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore, my sentence is that we should trouble not them which are from, the gen from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write in them that they abstain from pollutions of idols, from fornication, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses of old time has in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. So this is James, and he stands up and he says, listen, this is it. And I agree that we're saved by grace through faith. We're, we're saved not by our works, and we're not going to put them under that yoke of bondage, which is the discussion that Peter has. He, he confirms that, and he agrees with that. He says, but on the other side of that, and this is consistent, not only is this consistent with James, this is consistent with Paul. And that's going to become important as we progress this morning. It's consistent with Paul. He says, listen, we are going to write to them that they abstain from pollutions of idols. They don't fall into idolatry. That they don't fall into fornication or sexual immorality. That they, don't, uh, that they stay away from things strangled and they stay away from, from blood. And there's some specific context in those last two. Okay, but the idea here is, listen, the result is going to be somewhat familiar. The result of our faith should be manifest in the way that we live. And that's very consistent with what we're going to discover here in the book of James. Chapter 2, in particular, is a balance of the works and faith, or maybe not a balance, but how, they how the two work together. And Paul has the same idea throughout his writings. And one of the others, so we have this, this is happening in AD 50. We know when that happened, and so... This is written before that, and the reason we believe that it's written before that is we get into James chapter 2, 
verse 2, when he's talking about people coming in and not being a respecter of persons, for if they're coming to your assembly, a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come also a poor man in vile raiment and torn up tattered clothes. That word assembly is the Greek word synagogue. And it's unique in its usage here. It's not typically the word used to discuss this. The church hadn't established its own word, so to speak, to describe their fellowship, their coming together. This is in the church's infancy. This is very near its its conception uh, and its birth there in the book of Acts, chapter 1. And James is taking his Jewish, his, his perspective, which is all of the apostles, and, and, and the early disciples of Jesus primarily being Jews. And we have God moving in and through Peter and others, uh, and Paul in particular, to be the, the apostle to the Gentiles, that who, the, because that was God's plan always. Even as we read in the Old Testament, we have the discussion of God looking to save the Gentile world, not just, not just uh, the, the Jewish world. They were his example people, but they weren't his only people, if I can just say it that way. Okay? So here we have James. He's this pillar in the early church. He's part of that Jerusalem council when we got to go get a determination of what is right, what is wrong, what is going to think about this. And we go there, and we get the answer. James is one of the guys that is recorded speaking. He's one of the guys that is giving clarity to what is happening. And then we look stylistically at that speech, and we look at the characteristics of how it was written, how it was, how it was constructed in its, in its uh, language, and we find it to be very consistent with the book of James. So at the very least, the same person speaking in Acts wrote the book of James. I believe that's the brother of Jesus. Okay. Now, Jesus, excuse me, not Jesus. James doesn't tell us why he writes this book. He doesn't tell us why he's written it. But I want to, uh, you have a couple of things happening in the early church. You have, number one, these Judaizers who are coming in and trying to add works and make this yoke of bondage, just legalism, uh, salvation by works, and some uh, performance-based system, which is not what Jesus taught, which is not what we find elsewhere throughout the rest of the Scripture, whether it's Old or New Testament. Their faith in the Old Testament was counted to them as righteousness, just as it is in the New Testament. So there is some addition there, but the other thing that you have happening and is, is a swing the other way. But we're going to take Christianity, we're going to make it a Jewish sect. We're, going to, we're just going to incorporate it, syncretize it into Judaism, and it's going to be its own specific Jewish sect. And with, with regulations and rules and laws and all those kinds of things, that's, that's one thing that's happening. The other thing is, listen, we're leaving Judaism, and we can swing all the way over here. We're now free from the bondage that we felt like we were in. We can't do anything that we wanted to we're over here, we can live however we choose to now. And Paul addresses that to a great degree because it was, in some respects, partly Paul's doctrine being twisted to make that point. And that's called antinomianism. It's your big word of the day. 
antinomianism. And that's two parts, right? It's in its Greek, it means anti or against and nomos law, thus against the law. We're against any. And the belief is that there is no moral law that God would expect a believer to keep because we are, quote unquote, not under the law. Which is a misuse and a misunderstanding of the truth of Scripture. So James may be writing, and because of the context of, of, of the characteristics of what he writes about, he may be addressing this antinomianism uh, that has crept up in the early church. And this response to it, um, we don't know that, but he may have. And, and we have to understand that our salvation, what God has given us in Jesus Christ, uh, and the liberty that is associated with it is not licensed to live wantonly, however we choose. <clears throat> Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And, and this is the way that it would be phrased in that day and age. And it's even, in some respects, the way that we see it Maybe not phrased, but we see it in practice this way even today. Um, it says in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Right? If grace abounds much more than sin, then, hey, we should sin. Right? That's the idea. We should sin so that we get more grace. And Paul is asking a rhetorical question. He answers in the next verse. He says, God forbid. He answers that in the strongest terms. God forbid. It's completely wrong. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Right? We've been delivered from that. We've been removed from that. The idea is that in, as we get all the way over to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that we are laying down. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable unto the Lord, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. There is a change that takes place. We are delivered from the bondage of sin. No longer are we bound to live in such a way that we would be satisfying the lusts of our flesh. The works that we have should be evident of the faith within us. We're going to lay our bodies down. In other words, our lives, we're going to put those on the altar and say, Lord, do with this as you would for your glory, for your understanding. Rather that you might be known and understood. And don't be conformed to this world. Don't be like this world. But be transformed, renewed in your mind. Right? We're going to think like Christ thought. So we have this idea, and that's the transition that happens within us. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, right? Everything, we, we are new creatures in Christ. Everything that was old has passed away, and now we have only the new that is left. But there's this heresy, this antinomial her heresy that has crept up saying, listen, because we are new in Christ, because our righteousness isn't tied to our obedience to the law, we can live however we choose to. We can do whatever we want. 
And while it's true that our righteousness is not tied to the law, that's true. We are justified. We are declared to be righteous like we had never sinned by God through faith in what Jesus has finished on the cross. And we're no longer tied. Our, our, our righteousness isn't, isn't affected by the way that we live. We remain righteous. It's the one-time declaration of God that we are righteous. That exchange has been made, and we are made his righteousness while Jesus has made our sinfulness. Okay? But that doesn't mean that we are escaped, if I can put it in that term, right? That would be sort of how the, the antinomianism would think about it. Think about this, right? Here is Cain and Abel, thousands of years, thousands of years before the law. And when Cain was jealous that Abel's sacrifice was received and his wasn't, and he murdered his brother, it was called murder before murder was codified as being wrong. In other words, what I'm saying is that there are those things that are right and those things that are wrong, period, whether they're written or whether they're not. God was telling Adam and Eve, and this is even before the fall, right? That here it is. This is the institution of marriage. That the two, the man and the woman, they're going to both leave their parents and they're going to cleave together and let no one put asunder or tear apart that which God has joined. Right? We have this idea. So all the way from the very beginning, God is declaring what is right and wrong. He gets to decide because he's the creator. It was never written down at that point. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't codified. There was no, but it was still right and it was still wrong. There is still a moral law that God would expect you and I as believers to keep. And part of, part of the reason is because it's a testimony of who he is. It's a testimony of the transformative power of Jesus Christ in our hearts and minds. That being made new, that renewing of our thoughts and the intents of our hearts. There are those things that are wrong, period. And those things that are right, period. God wrote them down. And, and listen, when he wrote it down, all it was saying is, here's the line in the sand. This is how you will know what is the purpose of the law, that we might know our sinfulness. It's our schoolmaster to show us our need for Christ. And was that for the nation of Israel? Was that for the Gentile world, and it's still that today. And as we walk in obedience to the things that God has said that we should do or that we shouldn't do, this is good, this is bad, we're going to do that, we're not going to do that. We're not walking in legalism, we're walking in obedience, which is hear and do, remember? As we study through obedience, it's hear and do. God said, thou shalt not kill. It doesn't somehow cease to be wrong to kill because we put our faith in Jesus Christ, yet antinomians would say, well, listen, it wouldn't matter. But it's still wrong. It's still sin. Galatians chapter 6, that God is not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. There is a consequence for sin in your life and my life, whether we trust in Christ or not. The eternal consequence has been paid. We're forgiven. 
but the consequence that may be reaped in this life still exists. If we murder somebody, word of God says, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Right? There is a restitution to be made. The only restitution that can be made is shedding of blood. Your blood is you shed that blood. And I realize that's somewhat simplistic terms, but that's what the Bible teaches. And why do you do it that way? Because listen, if you know that you're going to die for killing that person over there, you're probably not going to kill that person. It's a very detrimental thing. It stops us. Consequence. Okay. There are those things that are right and those things that are wrong. A moral law that exists no matter what. Now, turn with me to Matthew's cha- Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22. Look at verse 37. Jesus here confirms the law, and he does so in a unique way. Jesus said unto them, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. For on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So here they are. These Pharisees come. They're going to ask him. We're going to try and trick him. What is the greatest commandment in the law? And this is Jesus' answer. It's not a repeal, but it's a confirmation of what God has said. And he sums it up in two, two categories. Love God and love your neighbor. And to that question, who is your neighbor? Well, everyone is your neighbor. And Jesus made that clear. Whomever. So we love God and we love people. He confirms the law in that sense that on the law and the prophets, right? Everything in the Old Testament that has been read hangs on that, those two points. Love God and love people. When we talk about sin and we look at sin from a very uh, fundamental standpoint, we're not loving God and we're not loving people. We've broken the law. And God just codified it, said, listen, here are ways that you're not loving people. Here are ways that you can love people. Here are ways that you're not loving God. And here are ways that you can love God. In 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that says, I know him, and keeps not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keeps his word in him, verily is the love of God perfected, hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abides in him, ought himself also to walk, even as he walked. So here... (laughs) If we want to know, do I love Jesus or not? We look at our life and say, okay, what am I practicing? What is the fruit of my life? What is happening on the outside? It's reflecting what's on the inside. Jesus said out of the abundance of the heart, out of what in here, the mouth speaks. That's how we act and conduct ourselves. 
Is it something that I'm going to operate in obedience, whether anybody's looking or not? Or am I looking to just put out there what I can get away with? If you know him, you'll walk in obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. There's a clear idea established in Scripture, whether it's the Old or New Testament, that by walking in obedience, by taking the Word of God for what it says and walking in obedience to it, just like we read in Romans 12, 2, being transformed, the renewing of our mind, putting the Word in so that what comes out is from that abundance, not the abundance of our flesh. I think in some respects, there is a case to be made that James is writing because there are those that are leaving, and you consider the audience, right? Here are these Jews who their entire life have been taught, and they've been, because of where they are in history, they've been taught incorrectly. This isn't what God has recorded in the Old Testament. But here are the Pharisees saying, listen, this is the law. And by their traditions, Jesus would condemn and say, by your traditions, you made the law of God of no effect. So here they are under this yoke of bondage, legalism, where their righteousness is tied up in whether or not they're walking to the store on a Sunday afternoon or whether or not they kindled a fire or whether or not they drug their foot through the dirt and somehow furrowed the field. And now I've been farming. Jesus begins to address that that misunderstanding when his disciples, as they travel through the field right on the Sabbath, on a, on, a, on a Saturday, and they're just grabbing and eating the grain as they walk through, but that's harvesting. They've broken the Sabbath, and Jesus rebukes those who are criticizing them. He says, listen, God didn't make the Sabbath the, the man for the Sabbath. He didn't obligate you to keep it and to, to be this uh, check mark. Well, I don't do anything on Sunday, and I don't do this, and I can't go do that. And you know, no, no. He said, God made the Sabbath for man. And as you go through and you look at what, when was it instituted? It was instituted on the seventh day, right? Here is God. He's created everything. He wasn't tired. He literally spoke it into existence. He's omnipotent. God wasn't tired but he established a day off for mankind. And as you read in Scripture, he literally says, this is why I made it, so that you can rest from your labors, so that you can do as we read in Scripture and you can enjoy some of the fruits of your labor. So God in his goodness gave man the Sabbath so that we might have a day off, we might step back, we might commune with one another, we might enjoy fellowship with him, we might give thanks. We might all of those things because we have one day that we set apart for the purpose of acknowledging, for the purpose of rest, for the purpose of seeing what God has done. Yet there are those in Scripture that would say, listen, and this is the day and age that these Jews are coming out of. You can't do this. You can't do that. You can't do that. I mean, we got 10 commandments, right? 10. God gave 10 specific ones. Now, there's some other things in the Levitical law, and so those kinds of things, but they're ultimately applications of those same 10 laws. Yet we have the Pharisees, and in their zeal, 
say, listen, we're going to add hundreds upon hundreds of laws. And that's how we're going to gauge righteousness. By how much you've given, by how much you've done this, or how, how much you didn't do that. So we have these Jews who are getting saved, who are being born again, and now they're liberated. They're righteous. They're declared righteous. And the burden of bearing all of that legalism is gone, and they're running to the, to the extent that, boy, we can live however we want, which is inconsistent with what we read in Scripture. But we still see it lived out today. We still see those who would say, listen, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I can, I can do this or I can do that. Or it doesn't matter if I can get away with it. or so, We're not getting away with anything. God already knows. And if you are in fact a believer, and you're, you're probably living under heavy conviction. Because here it is, God has transformed you and brought you into his family and given you victory over that, and you're just putting yourself back in bondage to it. God forbid, Romans 6, 2. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And as you read through the book of Romans, and, and as we study through chapter 6 there, it talks about that we are freed from the bondage of our sin and lust, and we are freed and brought into service to Jesus Christ. It isn't bondage for bondage. It's deliverance to freedom to serve. This antinomianism is wrong, and it's, it's rampant in the church today. It's why Sunday Christians come and they get tanked up on a Sunday morning. They soothe their conscience. I feel good about myself. Boy, I really, I did the things that I was supposed to do. I've checked the boxes. And while there isn't anything wrong with going to church, and there isn't anything wrong with with tithing, and there isn't anything wrong with reading the Bible, and all those things that we do because it's part of our spiritual discipline, when they become the things that determine whether we're righteous or not rather than Jesus, that's not the gospel. That's Phariseeism. And it's rampant in the church. So James addresses and he spends some time discussing the relationship between faith and works. He takes the time to address that. And we're going to take the time to address that. James is often considered and looked at it as wisdom literature, kind of like Proverbs, and, and, and it's somewhat proverbial in its, uh, in its nature. I'll tell you this, that the book of James is not a theological book. It's not like reading Romans where we get all these deep theological truths and those kinds of things. What the book of James is, is a very practical one. Here's what the word of God says. What are you going to do with it? Be ye hearers of the word only or doers of the word is the question posed in the first chapter. It's very practical. This is boots on the ground Christianity right? This is where the rubber meets the road. I can talk it. I can, I can become knowledgeable in it through studying scripture, but unless it comes out in the way that I live, unless it's engaging the world around me, has it really done any good? And those are the questions that are, po that are posed in James. 
one of the things that you do when you try to study a book and you try to do an introduction like this is you outline it. You try to get an outline. And I'll tell you what, that James is extremely hard to outline. I just gave up. Because it's like trying to outline Proverbs. Every verse may be somewhat unrelated to the previous one. You might have a couple in sequence because there's some parallelism there. But ultimately, each one can stand alone. They're Proverbs. And James, in many respects, is like that. Now, in my opinion, as you go through, it comes together in chapter 4. You have some things addressed, and then it comes together in chapter 4. And we're going to sort of approach it from that perspective. But some of the things that we read about, some of the key themes in the, the book of James, and it's very similar if you, if you want to take some time this week, go read the Sermon on the Mount, and then come back and read James. You're going to find some real parallels. Go read Matthew 5 through 7, and then come back and read James. There's, there's a lot of similarity. But some key things, number one, genuine religion or the practice of our faith. That's what religion means. It's the practice of our faith. It's the outward expression of what is inside. Genuine religion. I know we throw around religion as sort of a negative word, but that's really what it means. Genuine faith, which is an interesting statement because here it is, an entire chapter discussing works. But really, it's a discussion about genuine faith. And when we understand it in that perspective, we have a much better perspective on what's being talked about. Genuine wisdom or proper action based on knowledge. That's what wisdom is, right? Here's the truth, and we put it into practice. We use it. So genuine, proper action based on knowledge. It's a book about genuine wisdom. If any of you lack wisdom, that's right here in the book of James. Some of the key words that we're going to find in this book is before we get on to these, these key, these things, is wisdom. Wisdom is a key word. Patience is another one that we read a lot about in James. And trials or temptations. And I'll just throw that those trials and those temptations are closely related to faith. You could also maybe add faith as a key word through here, though you don't read faith in the book very often. But I think that'll become clear, and we'll uncover that as we progress. So some of the things that we read about in the first chapter, we read about trials, read about temptation or hardship. My brother, encountered all joy, verses 2 through 3, when you fall into verse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. In other words, it bears fruit in your life. He says, doers, be doers of the word, verse 25 in chapter 1. But whoso looks in the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. And there's some context there. We're going to dive into that context. But we need to be doers of the word, not just those who hear it. We can feel good about it, but when we put it into practice, that's when it becomes difficult. That's when it becomes life-changing. He talks about the equality that exists within the body of Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 2, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, with respect of persons. And then he discusses the rich man and the poor man. And that's really just an illustration. We could put any kind of characteristics there. There is an equality within the body of Christ. Right? The eye can't say to the toe, we don't need you. And the toe would just say, well, why didn't you see that table that I stubbed on the other day? I had a joke, guys. Come on. 
It's a terrible joke, but it's a joke nonetheless. We have a discussion about holiness, chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man say, thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. When I talk about holiness here, this isn't some manufactured, no, this is genuine result of the change that has happened within us, holiness. We have a discussion about the tongue and our speech, that being a fruit of our self-control and discipline established through the truth of God's word and his redeeming power within us. Chapter 3, verse 2. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. We all know how easy it is to put our foot in our mouth. How quickly it happens. How harmful it can be. We have a discussion about foolishness. Chapter 4, verse 1. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your own lust that war in your members? I think that chapter 4 takes the previous chapters and brings them together and begins to discuss the why and the how. And I call it foolishness because if wisdom is the proper application of the knowledge, doing the opposite, pursuing after our lusts and those kinds of things, is foolishness. And then there's faith and patience, chapter 5. And, and, and I, put, I, I couldn't choose between faith and patience because patience is an exercise of faith. I am trusting that God will bring about whatever plans and purposes he has in this. And so the question in, in those times when we're working in patience is, Lord, do I trust you? Do I have faith? James 5, 7, be patient, therefore, brethren, under the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waits for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he receives the early and the latter rain. And he's just spoken about some of the persecutions and the hardships they've endured. This is wisdom literature, and it's, and it's aptly called that because it's the proper application of the truth of God's word. It's living it out. Now this morning, I want to close with this. In James chapter 1, verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. And I want to just focus for just a moment on this word, servant of God. He says that he is a servant. Now that's the Greek word doulos. Right? That's what it, and it simply means that he is under a master. And James is here saying that he is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's under the mastery of Jesus. He's willing to do. He has picked up his cross and he's followed Jesus. He has put his body on the altar and he was there letting it be a living sacrifice. However we phrase that, that's what it means, that he is a servant of Jesus Christ. He's choosing and willfully choosing to operate in faith, that what God's word says is correct and true and proper, and because I trust and believe that, I'm going to put it into practice. Turns me to John chapter 12 for just a moment. John chapter 12. Let's read verses 23 through 26. 
And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come, and the Son of Man should be glorified. Fairly, fairly, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone, but if it die, it brings forth much fruit. Verse 25, he that loves his life shall lose it, and he that hates his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now think about this. Here's Jesus Christ, and he's going to the cross, and he's giving this this expect this idea that, listen, I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to lay down my life, and I'm going to lay down my life for you. And then he transitions almost immediately into talking about you. He that loves his life shall lose it. In other words, if I'm, going to, if I'm going to hold on to it so tightly that I'm unwilling to say, listen, Lord, just like Jesus would address in John chapter 3, that these are the things that, that, that are true about me, that I am in fact a sinner, that I am in fact in desperate need of the saving work of Jesus Christ. If I want to hold on to it that tightly, I'm going to lose it. And not only am I going to lose it physically, I'm going to lose it for eternity. But he continues on, listen, if anyone is willing to lose their life, or as he says here, he that hates his life, he that would be acknowledging, just like Paul said, listen, woe, I am the chief of sinners. If anybody's going to be honest and say, listen, I need Jesus Christ, because that person is going to keep their life. And not only are they going to keep it, but they're going to gain eternal life is what what we read in John chapter 3, verse 16. And he uses the illustration. He says, listen, a grain falls to the ground, and unless it dies, it it doesn't bring forth any fruit. It has to fall to the ground. And in some respects, Jesus is talking about himself as he's going to fall to to the ground, figuratively speaking, he's going to be planted, he's going to bear fruit. He's the first fruits among many brethren. But in application to you and I, unless we let our life die, we're not going to bear the fruit that God is going to bring about in us. The change that we'll reap being new creatures, being born again, not just having changed the way I behave. When God talks about... uh, the nation of Israel in, in, in regard to their hard-heartedness, he doesn't just say, listen, I'm going to soften your heart. He says, yeah, I'm going to take your hard heart out. I'm going to put a soft one in. I'm going to replace it. I'm going to give you something new. It is possible for you or I to say, listen, I realize that I'm a sinner, I realize, and, I'm, and I've got problems in my life, and I'm going to be disciplined enough, and I'm going to do these things. And we can change our life, and it happens all the time. We change our life, but what is still true is that there is still a heart of stone in there. We haven't been born again. We haven't experienced the salvation that it comes from Jesus Christ. All we've done is change the way we behave. We haven't changed the abundance of our heart. 
And while we may live under self-discipline to some degree, like the Pharisees, at some point it comes out. Jesus gives us this option, just or this, this idea that just like James, who is a willing servant, willing to give up his life so that he might serve Jesus Christ and reap the fruits that are associated with that, to be born again, to be uh, brought into service and usefulness to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're going to have to lay something down. Might be the goals and the ambitions that we have. Might be the things that we, I mean, there might be other things that we would rather do, but this is what God has called us to. And so we're going to walk in it. We're going to, by obedience, lay our life down. We're going to be those willing servants. In Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, Paul is here writing specifically to believers, and he's giving them instruction. And part of what he's telling them is, servants, be obedient to your masters. Let's make some application from that. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and singleness of your heart as unto Christ. So just pause there for a moment. Here, here he's saying, listen, you're going to submit to your masters and you're going to do so as unto Christ. This is an honoring thing to the Lord. This is, how, this is a, a way that you get to lay your life down, as it were, to bring him glory. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of God doing the will of God from the heart. Not as eye service, right? When the master's looking, I'm busy and working, but when he turns around, I lean on the shovel or whatever. No, it means that we're going to be honest in all that we do. When the master says, listen, here's the task. This is what I need you to do, and I need you to have it done by this time. Or We're doing it, and we're doing it serving him, knowing that God is watching. We're not a man pleaser in this sense. We're doing this as under the Lord. We're doing it as service to him. And is our master going to reap the benefit of it? Sure. But that should be a witness to him. Why would Sam work differently than these other guys? This is not something nobody likes doing this. Why would he be so enthusiastic about doing a good job at it? You know, let me tell you why. Because... I'm doing this for the Lord. We have that opportunity, that witness, whether, whether it's only visually and they just observe what's happening. But it should be consistent with the profession of our faith. Verse 7, with good will, with good will doing service as of the Lord and not to men. Verse 8, knowing that whatsoever good things any man does, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And you masters, do the same thing unto them. Forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with them. Masters, listen, you have the same responsibility. Sounds familiar to what we were just looking at in Philemon, doesn't it? That here, Onesimus, you, the servant, you need to go back to your master. You need to go serve him. This is, this is the arrangement. And you, Philemon, master, 
listen, treat him like a brother. Don't threaten, just forego all of that. Treat him like a brother. Why? Because we're serving the Lord on both accounts. We're honoring him. I want to look at an example of somebody who served the Lord, who was willing to do that. Turn with me to Numbers 14. You remember that as the nation of Israel approached the promised land, they sent in some spies, right? They sent in 12 guys, one from every tribe, and they go out and they spy the land out and they're gone for a period of time. And they, they in fact find that it's just as God has promised. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And they bring even the, the bunch of grapes back in this example and they have to carry it. It's so big on, two, on a stick between two men. And they all acknowledge, indeed, this is a land flowing with milk and honey. And, but there's a huge but. There are giants in the land. There are those things that, that, that are, we are terrified of. They're gonna, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. They're just going to smash us like bugs. And there are two of those spies who went into the land, Joshua and Caleb. And they were zealous because, they, they, yeah, there's giants in the land. We have to acknowledge that. There's some big men. But if God is for us, who can be against us? We would read in the book of Romans. And that's sort of what they say. Listen, God has promised this land to us. No one can stand before him. doesn't matter how big they are. Let's go. And ultimately, what as a result of the people listening to the other 10 spies, an entire generation has to die in the wilderness. They're unwilling to lay their life down and trust God and what he's called them to do because it seems impossible. It seems too hard. It seems overwhelming. We're going to be squashed like bugs. Yet there were two that said it doesn't matter. God has called us to this. We're going to be fine. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 24, number, Numbers 14, verse 24, But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him and has followed me fully, him will I bring into the land wherewith he went and his seed shall possess it. An entire generation passed away, but two people from that generation, Joshua and Caleb, get to go into the promised land because they trusted the Lord. Now Moses would have gone, he got expelled for other reasons. But do you notice what it says here? says about Caleb, he had another spirit with him. His wasn't a spirit of faithlessness. His wasn't a spirit of fear. His wasn't a spirit of bondage. His was a spirit of trust. His was a spirit of faith. And as a result of his faith, he was willing to walk even in peril, knowing that God would deliver him, knowing that God would be for him, whatever that looked like. Because for you and I as believers, right, the, the, the truth is still there that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And if that's the way that he chooses to deliver us, to remove us from the circumstance altogether, even that is good. Oh, death, where is your sting? That's a possibility. That wasn't the possibility that Caleb was excited about. You look at Caleb, and as he gets into the promised land, it says that his family gets to possess when they're dispersing the land and everybody's getting doled out, here are all the tribes and you're going to be over here and you're going to be over here. Caleb gets a special part of the promised land all to himself. And he gets to pick where that is. 
and he chooses a cozy retirement house down on the Sea of Galilee. No, that isn't what he chooses. He says, give me that mountain. Give me that mountain because the sons of Anakin, there are still giants there, and I'm going to go take them down. Because God has called us to go into the land and to possess the land, to take over the land, and we aren't done. But I know that my God is with me. Give me that mountain. He had a different spirit in him than the rest of the nation of Israel. When we look at James and we look at this servanthood, we look at the ability that you and I as believers in Jesus Christ have the, the privilege to be the servants of the living God. We have two options. We can be like the nation of Israel, who were also the servants of the living God, but they walked in an absence of faith. They walked in fear. They, they, they were consumed with what they could see and stuck. And they perished in the wilderness. I'll tell you this, the wilderness is a picture of this world outside of Christ. And I'm convinced of that. And I'm convinced that the promised land is a picture of this world with Christ. And there's ups and downs in it. But they perished in the wilderness. You and I have the opportunity to thrive in the promised land through the faith that we have. We've all been given a mountain. We've all been given some area where God says, listen, I want you to be of import and effect right there. And we go and we spy it out and we see what's happening there. And we think to ourselves, boy, this really is, I can see the need here. God is, he knows what he's doing here, but woe is me. There are some giants. I'm out. Or we can be like Caleb and it doesn't matter. God will give grace. I'm in. James says, I am a servant of God, willing, willingly putting myself under the mastery of Jesus Christ, trusting him. And then he's going to spend the rest of this book talking about the fruit of that trust. What is the fruit of our trust? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word. I praise you, Lord, that, uh, that it is rich that it is substantial, that God, it instructs us uh, and equips us for every good work that you would call us to. And Lord, by your spirit, I pray that we would come into fuller understanding of truth, that our minds would be renewed, that Lord, we would have by your grace, the ability and the desire to lay our lives down as sacrifices, to walk as your servants, wherever you would call us, in trust, like Caleb. We thank you, Lord. We praise you for the strength uh, that you give us. We praise you for the, the, the indwelling of your spirit that empowers us. We rejoice, Lord, that every provision has been made. And you've set us up for success in your kingdom. May we honor you in what we do. We praise you, Lord, and we thank you. And as we have time to worship and to sing and, and to fellowship, God, we pray that we would do so in honor of all that you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.